Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Hello, and welcome back to Disruptors at Work and Integrated Care Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara English, and with me today is one of our fabulous students, Allison Earle. And today we're going to be talking about maternal mental health through a trauma-informed equitable lens. So in today's episode, I wanted to share, I wanted to share that the National Partnership for Women and Families recently published a bulletin on the maternal mental health crisis in the United States, which stated our maternity care system often fails to provide equitable, respectful, culturally centered, safe, effective, and affordable care. It spectacularly fails communities struggling with the burden of structural racism and other forms of inequity, including Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, sometimes called BIPOC, rural communities, and people with low incomes. The multiple crises of the COVID pandemic, economic downturn, and national reckoning on racism have underscored the need to address the social influencers of health. I thought that was a strong uh, statement, you know, that really speaks for the crisis very clearly. So in today's podcast, Allison and I will discuss ways to improve maternal and infant health by tackling some of these factors through the lenses of trauma-informed care and integrated primary and perinatal care. So welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about your experience in this area, Allison, and and tell our listeners or remind our listeners, because you've been a guest on the podcast before, where, uh, where in the world are you? And what is the, what is the practice and population that you serve? So I am Allison Earl. I am located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and I work at Hands to Guide You Behavioral Health under Dr. Larry Ford. The way that I actually got into treating women during their maternal health was, I remember the the day that Dr. Ford, he calls it throwing me to the fire. Mm -hmm. And we got a call from, we're directly across the street from one of the largest hospitals in our area. Mm -hmm. We treat a lower income neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have over the last year have had a lot of people start traveling from outside of our area or doing telehealth. So mm-hmm. we've expanded, but we still see a high volume of Medicaid, state Medicaid patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that day, I remember we got a call from labor and delivery across the street. And he, you know, he said, okay, it's your turn. And I went over there and I interacted with the social worker and met the physicians and met the patient and, you know, conducted a screening, a couple screenings with her and then set up time for her to come see me after she was out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then I also have a really good relationship with one of the OBGYNs down the road from us. And so I take all of their referrals. So I see a high population of depression during pregnancy and postpartum. Yeah. 
Thanks for that, Allison. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, Doctors of Behavioral Health, we uh, specialize in integrating behavioral health into medical areas. And so what Allison is talking about is um, being available both in an outpatient mental health clinic that is integrated, you know, to be able to provide uh, care at the intersection of physical and mental health for patients with complex health conditions, including social determinants of health, and also to be able to walk into a, what is considered to be a primary medical, medical care center, such as a hospital or a maternity ward, and to be able to assess and deliver care right on the spot. And, um, I'm really proud of you first and foremost, because, you know, maternity can be kind of a scary place for students because, you know, birth and labor and delivery is truly a, a life and death situation. Um, it is a critical care, you know, kind of care delivery system. And it's also a place that I think there's just a whole lot of dismissive kinds of behavior, uh, primarily because there's a belief out there that quote, women have been squatting in fields and then returning to work, you know, within the same day. And so there's a lot of disrespect due to, um, pregnancy and, you know, labor and delivery of, of an infant. There's also a lot of disrespect to the providers who care for women during these times and, you know, the, the complex nature of what women face socially, emotionally, physically, and financially, economically during their pregnancies. Um, and so fortunately they have you as a doctor of behavioral health who understands the complexity, who can speak to and assess all of those areas. So, um, just a really quick introduction of my own involvement here in Arizona. I've been working primarily or, or solely really with the perinatal population here in Arizona for about the past seven years, maybe a little longer, um, I actually started when my son was in first and second grade, when one of his friend's mothers, a lactation consultant um, with the International Board Certified Lactation Consultant or IBCLC designation, um, connected with me about wanting to integrate behavioral health services into their lactation consultant business. And it, it really was a great open door for me, you know, as a mother of a single child who was now, you know, in grade school. So definitely away from being a, a mother of a very small child or breast or, you know, having breastfeeding challenges, but also definitely helped me to integrate clinically in an area that I think really has never been integrated very well previously. And it's also an area where, um, medical folks such as obst obstetricians, um, gynecologists, certified nurse midwives, you know, labor and postpartum doulas and lactation consultants have been useful as primary mental health providers for women for many years due to lack of access to mental health providers who really understand how vulnerable women are in, in the reproductive years of their life and certainly during their pregnancies and delivery. So um, that led to me meeting some certified nurse midwives and doulas and birth assistants and, you know, um, 
moving further down the integration levels of integration scale into working shoulder to shoulder with midwives um, at a birth center for three full years. And that has really moved us forward into a lot of really interesting projects. So one of the other ways that I serve here in the state of Arizona is I sit on the maternal mortality review committee. So we review the deaths of any woman during her pregnancy or for the first year after birth. And that has really given me a huge spotlight into some of the, you know, major causes of death and obviously how disruptive a, a maternal death is to an entire family, to an entire generation. So this area is definitely a, a priority and, and a huge passion for me. It's something that, you know, as the CEO of, of Cummings Graduate Institute and as a mentor for our doctor of behavioral health students and, and certainly anyone who's looking at improving healthcare, I think this, this area, you know, has to be top in terms of priorities. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I've really learned and, and honed throughout the program and, and gaining my doctorate is I was able to go in because I just so happened to the OB that I work with is actually mine too. Mm -hmm. So I already had a personal relationship, but mm -hmm. I was able to further that relationship by talking to her about what I was specializing in. And mm -hmm. then I was able to have the conversation about medications and the importance of screening early and the importance of referring early. Right. And so now, I mean, the moment she sees something, she sends it to me and That's that way we cool. can, we can work on that together. And then I always call and follow up with them and yeah, let them know when I'm seeing their patients and, and how they're doing. Yeah. I think that's been a major issue for a lot of providers because there's a real emphasis on every provider in, you know, working with women in the perinatal setting should be screening, but there has been very little done about the, the access to mental health providers, that barrier is huge. So for a provider, you know, an OB like yours, she has you to refer to. She has you to call when she is doing the screening that, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists says they should be doing. Mm -hmm. Many others have no one to call. And so for them to identify depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar in pregnancy or postpartum, where are they going to send them? Exactly. And, and, and so you know, that's, that's one of the big barriers to screening. Yes. And that's one of the things that I, I write a lot about in a lot of my work mm -hmm. in the program is the importance of screening for ACEs. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if I have a kid come in, it's often really imperative that I screen the parent because yeah. just because they weren't treated for postpartum doesn't mean they didn't have it. Yeah. It doesn't mean they didn't have trauma before that. That's only exacerbating their right. depression now. Right. So, you know, I've really talked about that and I've written a lot about that and the importance of not only increasing screening, but making sure you're doing the right ones at the right time. And yeah. then making sure to make that referral to whoever, you know, mm -hmm. and really building that network and letting them know, Hey, I'm the person you can call. Right. So yeah. I went from only one or two OBGYNs referring to me, but now I think I've got five. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Word spreads, word spreads really fast when you're the only perinatal mental health specialist in town. So for mm-hmm. me, I'm still getting calls from OBs that I met maybe seven years ago for the first time through a colleague and word of mouth. And, you know, once the floodgate opens, it's like you get every referral and you really start to realize, especially for moms who are on Medicaid, the social determinants and disparities that are related to whether or not she has good mental health you know, certainly for individuals on Medicaid with lower incomes, there are so many more challenges to having adequate health themselves, not to mention for their kids. And oftentimes if it's, if it's a choice between me or my kids, moms choose their kids, you know? So let's talk a little bit for the audience who doesn't know a whole lot about perinatal uh, mental health, what some of the conditions are. Um, and by the way, perinatal moon anxiety disorders are the most common complication of pregnancy and childbirth. And the estimates from Postpartum Support International, which is an organization that I've been involved with for many years now, is that one in five women and one in 10 fathers um, experience a maternal or, you know, what I would, what I sometimes refer to as paternal or, you know, parental mental health condition. And by the way, you know, just to be very, um, gender, you know, um, sensitive with the language that I use being in the world of maternity care, you know, it's really hard to swap back and forth between, you know, sometimes if I use the word parental care or, you know, human being with a uterus, it it gets a little wordy and I get tripped up on the language. So, you know, I want to acknowledge that, you know, for some individuals, um, having a uterus can result in a pregnancy. And, you know, I want to definitely be inclusive. So apologies if um, the language that I'm using is less inclusive than it needs to be. Um, But I'll do my best here. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, to go back to some of the statistics and and some of the conditions. So we're talking, what we're talking about is mental health conditions that appear or worsen during pregnancy or up to a year um, after birth, but postpartum support international in the trainings that I've attended has, has said that can last, you know, or it can be diagnosed for the first time, anytime after the birth of a child. And so, like you mentioned before, Allison, you know, not everybody comes in for care has a mental health disorder that's identified right after they have a child or during their pregnancy, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean it didn't worsen due to, you know, the pregnancy or postpartum relatedness of it. Um, and so I've had moms who have called me, you know, two, three years after they had their first child and they've asked me, do I still count? And that's always a heartbreaking question for me because, you know, I myself suffered from, what I would, I, I believe during pregnancy, I started to experience a lot of anxiety and, you know, did not have anyone else in my social circle that was pregnant at the time. So I really was kind of treading carefully into the motherhood identity change and transition by myself and being isolated as I was, uh, the anxiety was just crushing and it got, you know, hundred times worse, maybe after the baby came because of the huge weight of responsibility and how vulnerable infants are, um, you know, and, and I was a therapist who worked in early childhood and had a lot of, you know, early developmental child development and infant development training. And so I knew all of the ways that it could go wrong. 
and was terrified, you know, and then my husband was terrified too. So I would say we both suffered from, you know, perinatal, uh, mental health disorders. Um, but just to put the words out there, because I had a patient who said, I wish somebody would have said that I could have had, that it could be anxiety. Everybody kept saying postpartum depression, postpartum depression, no one said anxiety. And so I like to clarify, you know, we're not just talking about depression here, even though a lot of times the language that we, that we use is postpartum depression. It can be during pregnancy and it can be depression. It can be anxiety. It can be OCD. It can be post-traumatic stress. Um, and a lot of times that's exacerbated by birth trauma. Um, and I've also had individuals who were trans and were traumatized just due to the experience of being a pregnant person, you know, whereas they, you know, generally identified as male. Um, and that's, that was extremely traumatic for one of my patients. There's also bipolar disorder and, uh, postpartum psychosis. So, one of the things with postpartum psychosis is that the percentage is small, maybe one to 2%, but with postpartum bipolar, it is often the hormonal trigger that causes a first time manic psychotic episode and bipolar is caught for the first time. Whereas previously it was thought to be unipolar depression. So I want to stop there and, and kind of ask you a little bit about some of the, you know, patients before we started recording here, you were talking about, you know, how, how you've been seeing a lot of, you know, patients like this coming into you lately. So I want to ask you to talk about that a little bit and, you know, kind of share what's been, what's been happening lately for you, you know, in terms of who's coming in for care and and what's that look like? Most of the referrals have been for anxiety, actually. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because it'll say, anxiety during pregnancy or postpartum depression and anxiety. And I'm always glad that my referral sources put that on there Yeah, because I screen everyone that I see, regardless of who, what they're coming in for. I screen everyone with the adverse childhood experience questionnaire mm-hmm. to determine their level of childhood adversity and trauma. Mm-hmm. And then I always screen them with the PHQ nine for their depression and a GAD seven for their anxiety. So I already have an idea of what they're dealing with. Yeah. And then if I have a patient who is a week to two weeks, even three or four weeks out from birth, mm-hmm. then I'll go ahead and do the Edinburgh and check on their postpartum. And then I also always do bonding because mm-hmm. one thing that a lot of people don't know is that with depression and anxiety during pregnancy and after it often comes with a struggle to bond. Absolutely. You don't feel like yourself. And when you don't feel like yourself, it's really hard to give to an infant. Yeah. And then it also, uh, you know, paternal postpartum isn't mentioned enough. No. Because men feed off of what's happening with their partner, men Mm -hmm. or or women, whoever their partner is. Mm -hmm. And so they often will develop some depression and some anxiety with that and not think, oh, you know, oh no, I'm not the pregnant one. It's not me. But the right. thing is, is, you don't have to be pregnant to experience that with your partner. Right, right. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned the role of adverse childhood experiences, which, you know, you had mentioned before as ACEs. So for those listeners um, who don't know what ACEs are, adverse childhood experiences are um, basically we quantify them out of 10. So we, you know, use a screening tool that asks about 10 um, traumatic or, you know, considered big T trauma kinds of, uh, events that happened during the time that you were 
uh, before you turned 18. And based on that, you can get an ACE score. And what we know about the ACE score is that for individuals with an ACE score of one to three, they are much higher likelihood of having a stress-related, anxiety-related kind of disorder. And certainly those with a, an ACE score of four or higher are much more likely to have diagnoses of mental health, much more likely to have um, substance abuse kinds of coping skills, um, you know, much more at higher risk for chronic diseases, such as, you know, the top seven to 10 killers in the United States, cardiovascular disease, um, type two di diabetes, obesity, and, um, certainly for, uh, alcohol and substance abuse, uh, and mental health conditions. And unfortunately, genetically, a lot of the BIPOC po population have a higher incidence of those chronic health conditions anyway. Yeah. So then if you're also not aware of what their trauma score is, then you're not necessarily treating the problem, right? You're just kind of treating the fluff that they're giving you because right. they're not always going to tell you exactly what's going on. They're going to sugarcoat it a little bit for you. Cause right. a lot of times people think that, Oh, well, my trauma is not as bad as everyone else's. Mm -hmm. So it's not worth talking about. And that's what I tell people all the time. We don't compare traumas here. Trauma mm -hmm. is trauma, regardless of if you have a one or a four. Now, right at a higher incidence of chronic health conditions and depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress with four or more. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that your one or one, two or three doesn't give you the need for further treatment. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. And I, and I think, you know, we, as the, the national partnership, um, you know, mentioned in their, in their brief, Structural racism and discrimination have created additional barriers to affordability and, and culturally appropriate mental health care to the extent that many individuals, um, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color um, have not only a higher risk of experiencing mental health, but also have lower trust with the mental health community because they have been victimized historically by the psychology and mental health community, psych psychiatric, psycho psychology, and other mental health communities, um, you know, used in, in inappropriate research, unethical research, um, you know, even killed for the purposes of research. Um, and so these stressors not only play a significant role in increasing the amount of mental load stress, um, but also, as you mentioned, you know, can be part of the historical trauma that is genetically handed down from generation to generation. And for those of you who don't know a whole lot about this, I highly, highly recommend two books. One is Nadine Burke Harris's The Deepest Well, and the other is What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry, a, neuroci a, neuroci a neuropsychologist who I think he's a neuro, maybe he's a neurologist, but he is one of the most brilliant people I've ever heard, you know, kind of talk about the role of trauma on genetics. And there's a new field of science, which is, is really taking wing and taking flight right now called epigenetics. Epigenetics is the above the genome studies that, you know, demonstrate that it may not be a DNA change, but it may be a turning on or a turning off of a particular gene, for example, fear of dogs 
that has been generationally transmitted due to dogs being used to hunt slaves. And, you know, so people who have had no scary interactions with dogs in their life, a lot of times this happens for African-American or black individuals find themselves fearing dogs and, you know, really don't have an explanation for why. And, and we've learned that that actually can be at the genetic level or epigenetic level transmitted through gen- generations. So there's a, there's a whole lot more to health or disease or wellness that most medical communities have been taught in medical school that is, you know, absolutely critical for us as mental health providers and as medical providers in general to really dig deep in, in terms of continuing education so that we learn more about and, you know, so that we can meet our patients from that trauma informed lens. And, you know, certainly when we have patients who are more vulnerable, like pregnant people, that is a great time for us to be using our trauma-informed lens, our integrated lens to look at a whole person, right? Yes. So um, I want to talk, I don't want to forget to talk about the pandemic because for moms, you know, during, during national crises in general, pregnant people have significantly higher rates of mood disorders than the general population. And then you add racism and structural disadvantages. And again, people of color are disproportionately affected by national crises. So the COVID-19 pandemic has really exacerbated maternal mental health conditions among pregnant and birthing people of color, but, you know, pregnant and birthing people in general. So I know you mentioned, you know, you're having a lot of anxiety and I'm just curious of the individuals that you're seeing how, how are you hearing from them that the pandemic or these ongoing stresses in our lives are affecting them today? Looking for an article on, um, because I actually saw an article about black maternal mental health and how many of the babies, the, the white doctors weren't wanting to treat those mothers. And so I was looking for it and then my bill went crazy. So <laughs> will you repeat so you the said- question for me? So you said in the, in the article that you were reading, there was some evidence of white doctors not wanting to treat black women. Yes. And not wanting to deliver their babies. And oh, wow. Yes. And so there, I saw that a couple months ago. And what and was, what was the cause of that? Um, just that it, it was a racism thing. It was a, no, nope, wow. I'm not going to treat them because they are not doing enough pre- you know, pre-care. prenatal care. They're oh, not wow. seeing their obese. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. So I'm going to disconnect from this and I'm going to treat the people that are going to be able to pay more for it or my God. are doing what they're supposed to do. That is, I just, I can't even imagine now, like, you know, what, one of the things that I have seen and, and that has come up in the maternal mortality review committee meetings and in some of the maternal mental health task forces is that white providers get stressed out when women of color are saying this is not culturally appropriate care because white providers don't always know what to do. Mm-hmm. That, that in and of itself annoys me because, you know, as a white provider myself, 
I always think the first thing is, well, let me ask you, you know, what does that kind of care look like for you? And how can I approximate that care? You know, let me, let me tell you what I can and can't do. Um, and then let me find, you know, things that, you know, I can do in my own continuing education to learn, to do better. How can I examine this in myself? Because no person, no human being on this planet is immune from bias and from, you know, discrimination and front, you know, we inherit a lot of it from our environment, but we also have our own internal biases and, and, you know, we, we need to just be thinking about that and examining it. And I always say it starts with, you know, healing racial divide starts with each of us. We each take a look at ourselves and and then work from there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, just the idea of just saying, I'm not going to work with these patients. That's whoa. Yes. And that's a shock to me because, you know, we, we so often we push multicultural knowledge, whether it's taking a class or taking a training course or doing an implicit bias test or which we do at at CGI. Yeah. And in our CGI coursework, we do, uh, the implicit bias test in our, um, cultural competency and, um, healthcare equity class, you know, it's, it's part of trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is a lot of people still don't do trauma-informed care, even though it has taken a little bit bigger role over the last year or so it has gotten out there a little bit more, but there's still so many people that don't even think that trauma has a place in, in care, unless they specialize in it. Right. And the thing is, is you don't have to specialize in trauma to recognize that there is some. Yeah. You know, my understanding of, of trauma has really evolved over the years. And I, I, well, a huge part of it is because I've been so intrigued about it. I've wanted to learn more. And so you know, I learned about the Nadine when, after I watched the Ted talk on Nadine Burke Harris, I think that was back in 2014. And then I found that she had written a book. And so I immediately ordered the book and then I went to go see her speak. And then I've you looked for anything she has to say on the internet, you know, and then I've, I've, you know, certainly we have a lot of uh, Dr. Gail Cordes at CGI has been instrumental in offering extra, you know, we started with the EMDR class, the introduction to EMDR for integrated care providers, but there are people out there in the integrated care community who don't believe that EMDR is, you know, has a place in integrated care settings, which is insane to me. That tells me that, you know, again, like there's a a huge uh, differentiation, even within the integrated care professional environment you know, with people saying, oh, this is, or that isn't appropriate for integrated care. It's like, I don't, yeah. I don't understand why that wouldn't be, but okay. Um, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't go to the doctor and they're like, oh, your leg isn't broken quite enough exactly. for to put a cast on it. Exactly. But that's how people look at it. And that's mm-hmm. the thing is physical health and mental health are as important as the other, mm-hmm. because without one or the other, we don't have either. Well, and I think too, they're we're kind of getting a little off topic here, but, you know, just to, just to say that those who would say, oh, this is, or that isn't, you know, integrated care. And I've heard myself saying that I don't want to, I don't want to act as though I haven't. Um, But I think 
part of the problem with, you know, some of the community who would say EMDR isn't or trauma and trauma informed care isn't, you know, part of integrated care. I think there is such a pressure to be included or accepted by the medical community. And as a mental health professional, sometimes we're told don't push too far, you know, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't dig in your heels too much because, you know, we've got to be able to fit in, but unfortunately the Western medical model doesn't really want to include mental health unless we're talking about a costly population. And oftentimes that gets to be only those who have low economics and therefore qualify for Medicaid or, you know, and the unfortunate reality is that integrated care belongs at all levels of care in all populations, whether it's primary care or specialty care, it belongs everywhere. Everyone should have a physician or a provider who is knowledgeable about their entire wellness, not just the broken bone. Absolutely. But so back to maternal mental health. Yeah, to segue back to your question, you were asking about the results of after COVID and, and what yeah. I've been seeing, right? Yep, that's right. So uh, recently, actually, about maybe eight weeks ago, I got a new patient. She lives in a different city, so we did all telehealth. But part of her concern was, uh, I don't, a first time mom, I don't know what to do. What, when is it okay for me to take her out? When is it okay for me to do this and that? So right. we've worked a lot with that. There's a lot of anxiety with new moms um, around taking their baby out at all. Mm-hmm. If it's not full masks everywhere. And in Oklahoma, they're not mandating masks. So you don't right. have to go, you don't have to wear one anywhere if you don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not requiring vaccination necessarily everywhere. There are certain right. places that do, but not everywhere. Right. So there's just a high concern from a lot of the newer parents mm-hmm. about when to take their baby out, where to take them, if it's even okay to do so. Some yeah. of them told me that they didn't leave their house for a year after they had their baby. Yeah, we saw that here too. And, and, and Arizona um, was also a state that didn't mandate masks beyond the 30-day initial lockdown. So Yes. And, you know, that caused a lot of increased postpartum anxiety and depression because Mm -hmm. they didn't get treated right after they didn't know something was wrong until they had no social interaction. Right. And, you know, no interaction with anyone other than an infant who doesn't talk. Right. And and a partner who is either working or in and out of the house. Yeah. They were alone a lot. Right. A baby that they have no clue what to do with. Right. You know feed, change, bed, you know, feed, change, sleep. And so I I got a lot of reports of, man, just getting out has helped my anxiety go down because I was so, you know, cabin fever. I just had so much cabin fever from being stuck in the house. And, And at a certain point, you know, from staying in for so long, it becomes overwhelming to 
think about going out to the extent of like, well, what do I need? Do I need my mask? Do I need a hand sanitizer? Do we need to wear gloves? Do we, you know, in addition to all of the normal pre-pandemic woes and worries of a parent of, you know, well, what do I need to bring in my diaper bag? And, you know, what do I need to bring in the car with us? And, um, so I know a lot of parents were just like, it's just not worth the stress or hassle or overwhelm. And I don't have the energetic, you know, capacity due to sleep deprivation and infant care. And, you know, in a lot of cases, and I've said from the beginning, moms are, and have been the sacrificial lambs of the pandemic. They've been the ones to, you know, do all of, you know, quit. I think the, the rates of women leaving the workforce during the pandemic were higher almost to the extent that we saw a return to pre 1970s in the United States in terms of women in the workforce, because there were no other options for, you know, childcare and for, uh, school when all of the schools were closed. Um, and so moms were doing all of the childcare, all of the caring for the home, keeping the families going, make sure everybody had food because all of the restaurants were closed. You know, people who were used to grabbing a meal on the go, you know, while running kids around or, you know, picking up before or after school, those kinds of things changed completely and it. And it just fell to moms to figure mm-hmm. it out. And then often moms, like many of the moms who work at CGI or who are, you know, currently in the doctorate program at the, at CGI were working and getting a doctorate and raising and homeschooling and feeding children as well as their whole family. So it just really, we were, I think as, as a motherhood culture, we were really beyond our, you know, we were kind of at that 90% empty before yeah. the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, we went beyond, if it's possible to be less than empty, we were less than empty. Yes. And, you know, I still get the question, is it okay to bring my baby in? Mm-hmm. Because they still are unclear of what settings are okay to take. Yeah, there's baby. so much more uncertainty than there's ever been before about raising kids. And you know, then you threw in the political aspect when COVID became a political decision. And then, you know, just the where to go for reliable information. All of a sudden, the news media made the CDC and, you know, other organizations that we used to look to for health and, inform, you know, information about health. All of a sudden, there was a big question mark as to whether or not that was reliable information. And then, you know, in addition to the political factors, then we had a huge racial divide in our nation that moms were dealing with. And, you know, certainly we had a lot of individuals of color, you know, both teaching at and working for and enrolled at CGI who suddenly felt either, you know, isolated from their communities of, you know, their white community or, you know, very embraced by and supported by depending on politics and whether or not somebody was saying black lives matter out loud and proud or saying all lives matter, you know, these, these kinds of things directly related to the level of stress and toxic stress that moms have been living in for the past two years. 
Well, and, you know, another thing that I noticed was social circles, like you said, either got very small or got yeah. huge. Yeah. You know, I know, I mean, in, in my own personal experience, I, a friendship that I'd had for 10 years, you know, it ended up going away just because there were, there were some disagreements and then it was one of those things that it just happens. Yeah. And so whenever women don't have anyone to go to and don't have that other mother friend that they can say, oh my gosh, this kid's driving me nuts. What do I do? And have someone to support and have someone to vent and have one of my patients always says, oh, I get to have an adult conversation today. Yes, exactly. That's a complaint from a lot of moms because they don't get that until their kids are old enough. And then it's just a power struggle for a while. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, if they don't have any social support and even if they did have some, but through the pandemic lost some, that just increased their anxiety. Absolutely. Yeah, I I totally agree. So let's, let's talk a little bit. I want to say, you know, there's, there's been a lot of really good solid research out there about what happens if we do nothing and also what are the helpful things we can do as a medical, you know, an integrated trauma-informed medical community. Um, So some of the research on if we do nothing, if we continue to not screen for and adequately treat maternal mental health conditions or parental mental health conditions, uh, the research shows time and time again that this leads to long-term adverse health consequences for the entire family. And this again can, can last for generations. And so, you know, one of the things that you brought up that I loved was, you know, the idea of interactions and and infant bonding and attachment. And that's certainly something that, you know, when you have a parent who's anxious and or depressed or is psychotic and therefore completely unable to connect with the infant, or when you have a person who has, like, I've had a couple of patients whose germ phobia phobias and OCD were so intense that they were spending 90% of every day, you know, in compulsion rituals around germs and the pandemic made that a lot worse. Um, you know, there's just not time for attachment and bonding. There's not energy that is available to be, you know, devoted to that. And like you mentioned, when people are socially isolated, they don't have ways of knowing what is normal versus abnormal in their child versus other children versus what they're doing as a parent, you know, compared to what others are doing or worrying about as the parent. Um, And so when we are able to prevent and consistently treat maternal mental health and paternal mental health conditions, this is critical for us, you know, in terms of our society, because the cost of all of that adversity is simply punted down the line to the next generation. And I personally feel, you know, we're, we're a generation of children of baby boomers and baby boomers received a lot of second generation trauma from world war II. Mm-hmm. And the World War II generation received a lot of secondhand trauma from the World War I generation. And, you know, we look around at society today and the pace of technology and all of us having a smartphone and being more socially isolated than ever has led to 
the highest rates of mental illness among the population. And so it's critical that we get a handle on this. It's critical that we give people tools to have good mental health and good health in general and good social connectedness, good relationships, you know, strong, consistent rhythms and routines in their life, safe communities, healthy communities, because that's not something that we've been able to do for a long time. Absolutely. You know, and that's one thing I do um, with a lot of my patients is I'll give them little tips and tricks. Mm -hmm. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. I have one patient every time I talk to her, okay, so is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's all okay. As long as you're not hurting yourself or anyone else, Yeah. you know, you have to do what you have to do. It's okay to take the baby in the bathroom with you to shower. It's okay to do those small things. Well, and have to be completely spotless with a brand new baby, you know, instead of stressing about that bonding with your child is more important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I last, last week I was out of the office. I, um, went to London to visit a mom and baby psychiatric acute care unit in central London. And I was able to meet and interview and talk with the staff about their model And, you know, from a clinical perspective, one of the things that they do, and and they treat moms who have very acute psychiatric conditions, primarily, like we mentioned before, the postpartum psychosis, complete break from reality, and or a psychotic depression in which, you know, they've either tried to hurt themselves or, you know, have a history of suicide and are just not safe to be alone with baby, but at the same time would be more traumatized, further re-traumatized by being separated from baby. So, you know, in a mom and baby unit, the dyad is treated together, Okay, which is a really cool, uh, you know, model it's used in the United States. It's used in France and it's used in Australia that I know of. There are other countries as well that are using, you know, the dyad as a focus of care. And what I really loved about it was that Um, and this is something that I was debriefing with, with my, I went with certified nurse midwives. So one of the things that we were debriefing about after the visit was, um, the surprise at how much group care was being done throughout the day. So during a typical day, moms might start with a discussion about what infant bonding and attachment looks like. So again, to go back to how important that is you know, how to bond with baby, how to, you know, make faces with baby, things that, you know, influence positively attachment versus things that negatively influence attachment and bond. And then it might be a normal baby behavior, you know, babies cry a lot. And that's something that for me as a mom, and this lasted for years after I had an infant, after my son was growing, Um, when I would be around a crying infant, I would be really triggered, um, because I just, you know, my son had colic, he cried a lot. He did not sleep very often. And so I had a lot of PTSD around crying babies. Well, these mothers also have a trauma response to a crying baby. And a lot of times it is due to that anxiety level being so high that they are unable to meet the needs of their baby. They're unable to soothe and help baby regulate. And that immediately gets into their head 
as a, this means I'm a bad mom. This means my child deserves a better mom than me, you know? And that was definitely one of the issues that I was dealing with as a new mom as well. So, you know, to help moms in a group setting kind of ping, ping, ping off of one another, as they're all learning these, you know, similar skills when they're all receiving that consistent, calm support and messaging and reassurance to help them build their confidence on a day in day out basis to do the activities, the daily activities of parenting an infant. Mm -hmm. That was huge. And it was such a, it was such a lesson to me because I imagine in my mind, you know, thinking back hundreds or thousands of years when people lived in more tribal environments and, you know, mothers with infants and nursing mothers spent a whole lot of time together in groups and how healing and therapeutic and functional and, you know, related to survival, both of the dyad and of the population, those kinds of behaviors are. And so, you know, I definitely wanted to share some of the aha moments that came from visiting that mom and baby unit. And also some of the, you know, when I look at compared to the way that we, we tend to live moms and babies are not meant to live in the suburbs in their own houses by themselves for a year. You know, like you mentioned, I haven't left the house with my baby for a year. I don't know if it's safe. You know, the, our, our moms are struggling because of this. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I always do is I always refer them to, there's a company here in Oklahoma city that offers lactation classes and parenting classes and it's Mm -hmm. all free. And so they always bring us goodies. So I make them a goodie bag, but then I also refer them. That's amazing. Already a parent, it never hurts to go ahead and take a re-up of a parenting class and see. Or even just sit with other parents who are learning for the first time. Who cares? Yes. And and then you can also be that voice of reason, like it's going to be okay. You know, that happened with my first one. Or I'm seeing something completely different with my second one than my first one. And I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I... I think it's so important for us to make sure that we are giving any and every tool that we can to -hmm. these moms to be able to function independently and care for their child, regardless of if they have help or not. Right. Is it better to have help? Absolutely. It makes it easier. It's just the, like the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Absolutely. Well, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. And so if we don't have that village, we have to be able to cope on our own and still give that feeling to the, to the infant. Yeah. You know, um, your, what you just said is reminding me of a great book called seven sisters for seven days. Um, it was written by a woman who lives here in Arizona. Her name's Michelle Peterson. I I've met her and talked with her many times and she wrote the book after her first pregnancy, Um, She had some postpartum depression, some isolation, and she really figured out that she didn't have the village that she needed. And so she thought to herself, well, I'm a resourceful person. I can put together the village. And so she started by reaching out to other parents and inviting them to come together on a regular basis to simply talk about parenting infants. And she started to reach out. Um, she lives in a smaller area in Northern Arizona and she started to reach out to the local community. So she would invite, 
a lactation provider. She would invite a pediatrician. She would invite, you know, um, a person who would do a parenting education class. She would, you know, they'd go to the library and talk about, you know, good books for the first year of development. And, you know, so she really created this incredible thing. Um, but seven sisters for seven days really came out of her realizing that new parents, when they are, um, preparing for a baby and certainly in the first, what they call the fourth trimester, which is the first three months after birth, mm -hmm. new parents don't really need a whole lot of stuff, which is what they tend to get at a baby shower. What they really need is people who will come and help do the things so that they can spend the time with baby and with one another, you know, as partners adjusting to the new schedule, the new routines, the lack of a routine in the beginning, mm -hmm. which is true for all of us as we're getting used to each other. And certainly as a mom healing from, you know, the after effects of pregnancy and labor and delivery, you know, just, just as one example, the placenta, the placenta, when it attaches to the inside of the uterus, and then when it leaves the uterus during birth, it leaves a wound the size of a dinner plate on the size on the side of the uterus. And a lot of women don't know that. And again, are trying to race back to work. And in the maternal mortality and review committee, one of the things that leads to death is women have car accidents when their child is, you know, before that three months and they're trying to race back to work you know, two weeks after birth, a lot of, a lot of car accidents happen during those times for good reason. Of course they're sleep deprived and they're not physically or mentally, not to mention emotionally able to separate from baby during that time. Mm -hmm. So the book seven sisters for seven days talks about how to arrange the fourth trimester so that you have seven sisters or individuals in your life who can come or do one thing once a week for seven days. So they do seven weeks basically of their one day a week of care. So your sisters or your, you know, the people it can certainly doesn't have to be all women can do things like laundry or bring you a hot meal or um, grab the groceries. So she recommends things like getting grocery, um, gift cards from the, you know, the grocery store near you and then giving those to the grocery sister or brother, and then having them pick up a standard list of, you know, <clears throat> core, um, groceries that you need on a weekly basis, and then putting a cooler outside of your door so that you don't have to answer the door and spend time with a person. The person understands that their role is simply grocery drop off, which I loved. I thought it was such yeah. a great idea. It's such a great way to arrange care for the mother, not to mention the dyad, but the whole family. Yes. And, you know, I have a patient that was, com uh, had a little complaint about that. Her mother-in-law was there and was breaching some of her boundaries, you know, going into some areas of the home she wasn't really hip on and those kind of things. So we did talk about that. It's okay to set those boundaries as that parent. It's still your house, yeah. but we need the help. 
So by dictating and, and giving them a set of expectations of, yes, I need your help. And this is where I would need it the most. Right. is really important rather than, oh, whatever you want to do. Right. And that way they're not cutting into anything that you're not comfortable with. Right. Or, you know, pulling your laundry out of your room if you don't want them in there and putting it in the hallway or wherever your laundry stuff is so that they don't have to do something that you're not comfortable with. Right. Yeah. I love that you important too. Yeah. I, and I love that you bring that up, Allison. That's some of the work that therapists can do, you know, or even birth educators, labor and delivery doulas, um, postpartum doulas, you know, can do with moms as they're thinking about how to arrange a healthy environment for bringing baby home. And in the fourth trimester, you know, just rejuvenating themselves so that they have the care for themselves that they need so that they can care for the infant. Yes. And that's the thing that many women forget about too, after having a baby is self-care, their own self-care. Absolutely. So focused on infant care and making sure everyone else is okay, which is actually a trauma response. Absolutely. So if you're responding through trauma, then you aren't taking care of yourself. Yeah. And so I always remind my patients, anything that makes you feel better is self-care. Right. It doesn't have to be a massage or a pedicure or a long bath if you don't feel the time that you have the time for that. But yeah. you know, even taking 10, 10 minutes just to yourself and doing some breathing or listening to your favorite song, mm-hmm. that's self-care. Absolutely. And, you know, our, we have to remind our moms that you know, they are just as important as everyone else in their lives. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of times the providers who care for mothers during pregnancy and postpartum often have a hard time with self-care themselves. And so, you know, I've, 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 you know, definitely working with midwives who have a a terribly um, disordered sleep schedule due to, you know, needing to be available at all hours for shifts and on-call work. Um, And that's certainly true for obstetrics you know, as well. Um, and for doulas, um, but, you know, just being able to do self-care ourselves as providers, and then to share the little things that we do, like you mentioned, it doesn't have to be a, a spa day. And I think that's a lot of times people think self-care means a lot of time and a lot of money, but it actually means micro doses of supportive kinds of thinking, supportive emotion, you know, being able to sit with uncomfortable instead of pushing away or avoiding uncomfortable emotions, you know, being able to say, it's okay that I don't know everything as a mom. And it's okay for me to want to call my friend and ask my friend, you know, or my group of friends have my friends over to just be like, holy shit, this is really hard. I had no idea how hard breastfeeding was going to be. Everybody always talks about how wonderful, magical, and amazing, you know, my, you know, this, this relationship or this bond with my infant is, and I don't feel that at all. And breastfeeding is so hard. All of it, it just feels like I was misled, you know, being able to get validated for that. Um, and, you know, just, I guess, to go back to the, the providers being able to share that, you know, micro doses of self-care throughout the day, it might be a five minute walk around the backyard, you know, mm-hmm being in touch with nature, you know, we know that there are antidepressant chemicals that are released in our brain when we are in touch with nature, whether our hands are in the dirt or not, we have 
a brain that is wired to respond in a healthy way by being outside and being in touch with nature. We have a healthy response that is activated by taking a walk, by getting natural sunlight. Vitamin D is an important, you know, supplement, especially for people who live in, you know, areas that don't get a whole lot of sun, having a vitamin D supplement and definitely checking with your provider about the vitamin D levels. Um, fish oil, you know, is always a mood booster, making sure that your diet is as healthy and nutritious and, you know, leaving out the super processed, super sugar, super, um, chemical, you know, infused kinds of food and opting for as much raw, healthy fruits and vegetables, you know, and grains as you can possibly get in your diet. And things like drinking enough water, dehydration is a huge cause of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, just time, time away from baby, getting small breaks from baby and getting those adult conversations in and laughing, you know, staying away from the crime shows because so many people love crime shows and I get it. And at the same time, it is very heavy and it tends to reinforce that we are not safe, that we cannot trust one another as human beings. And, you know, yeah, part of that is true, but also it it causes you to want to isolate from other people and what your brain needs to recover, especially from a traumatic birth or, you know, from a a poor sleep schedule during the, the days after adjusting to having your newborn is it needs laughter. It needs relationships and it needs rhythm. So, you know, turn up the good music, dance, you know, try to get as much sleep as possible, um, you know, and really dive full into how can I microdose self-care throughout my day? Yes. And I was going to mention, I'm glad that you mentioned the supplements and stuff. Um, B12 mm-hmm. is another good mood stabilizer, mm-hmm. also offers energy and it's, it can come in all different forms. You can Absolutely. get prescriptions for it injections you can get it over the counter yeah and then also something i learned from my medical doctor is that a vitamin d deficiency also makes you more susceptible to covid oh yeah so if you have a vitamin d deficiency it is important to make sure that you are either taking it the over the counter or getting the the prescription from your doctor to do that absolutely yeah the midwives will give a 50,000 iu that's international unit of vitamin D, um, once a week and the recommendation from the Mayo clinic for supplementing after birth and after, um, during a depression episode is 10,000. I use a day postpartum support international recommends 10,000. I use a day of vitamin D and 3000 milligrams a day of a high quality fish oil. So I use high quality because there's a lot of crap out there on the counter. You know, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to CVS, sometimes even when you go to the gas station. So if possible, if you're able to find a high quality source, or if you're just able to eat more fish, those Mm -hmm. are, you know, higher quality ways to get fish oil and vitamin D. Absolutely. I take a krill oil every day by mega red and it's, it's my favorite because you don't get that fishy taste. But yeah, I take Solgar. Yeah. Solgar makes a really good fish oil and vitamin D. And, um, I get both of those. I order them on Amazon on a subscription. Um, you can also get them. There's a grocery store near us called Sprouts, which is a, like a farm, you know, kind of a farmer's market brand of a, and so you can get them there kind of at a discount too. So, um, 
yeah, so these are all good, definitely things that we can do, certainly, um, you know, to influence integration moving forward, just having a mental health provider who is connected with every women's mental health, or excuse me, women's health clinic mm-hmm. or practice, and, you know, having a mental health resource set up so that, you know, the, the OBs and the gynecologists know the mental health provider they know for sure that the mental health provider or practice is accepting referrals is accepting insurance. You know, these are things that we have to do as Americans, you know, to navigate our system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the recommendations that are based on the science of maternal mental health. One is the, the extension of Medicaid for an entire year postpartum. There are a lot of people who are against that right now. And I would venture to say it's probably because they're looking at it from a a political point of view instead of from a scientific point of view. Families need postpartum leave. They need it to be healthy, you know. Um, So the American Rescue Plan included the state option to extend Medicaid for a full year and states are choosing yay or nay, Arizona, you know, it was being contested. Arizona is one of those states where, you know, it's primarily a, a what you call purple state where it could go either way. Um, you know, but certainly we want to look at the science of how the 12 months of the extended Medicaid coverage can allow families to have health care that they need. And especially, you know, with Medicaid coverage, it's, it's moms who are in parents who are in the most need, you know, they have lower incomes. They don't have access in their neighborhoods. They have more social disparities and they're typically at much higher risk, you know, to go back to ACEs. They're usually individuals with higher ACE scores. They're usually individuals with fewer access points, you know, just at home and in their family. Um, and it's, it's certainly a medically vulnerable population that, that really needs that extra added coverage. Absolutely. One thing that's been really great for Oklahoma is the expansion, the Medicaid expansion, because it's allowed anyone from 19 to age 64 to receive outpatient behavioral health services on Medicaid. That's incredible. So now people that weren't qualifying for it a year or two ago, they put that into place July 1 of 2021. So Mm -hmm. we've had it almost a year and it's it's totally increased how many people we can see, how many people can get help. Mm-hmm. And it's also increased that postpartum time that they can come and get therapy and yeah. not be paying out of pocket for that. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. I, I'm, I've, I've been participating at the state level in, in some, um, advocacy for specific legislation in our state related to maternal mental health. Um, you know, we've got in the month of May, we were able to work with some, some of our state legislators to make a, create a proclamation that will make May on an annual basis, the, the, the month of maternal health. And so during the month of May, which is of course the month of mother's day, um, it will be a time when we'll be, you know, making a lot of um, public awareness campaigns around ways to access care, both medical and mental health, and you know certainly ways to access community groups that are focused on wellness for mothers and parents of young children. One of the things too that was recommended by um, the bulletin from um, the partnership that I that I talked about earlier, the um, National Partnership for Women and Families. 
um, was that they asked for support of the black maternal health momnibus. And that's something we've been talking a whole lot about, um, at postpartum support international and the 2020 mom annual forum. And, you know, just the 2020 mom, which is an advocacy organization out of California. So together the, the bills include funding for local initiatives that address maternal mental health conditions among communities of color and grow and diversify the maternal mental and behavioral health workforce, which is huge. You know, certainly here in Arizona, we need a trained workforce. We, we do not have a trained workforce, but um, we did receive funding here in Arizona last year in 2021 to partner with Postpartum Support International to offer the two-day components of care for maternal mental health training, as well as the advanced psychotherapy and advanced psychopharmacology for pregnancy and postpartum. So that, that is huge because a lot of providers don't know if any medications are safe during pregnancy or postpartum. Um, and you know, I could do a whole nother podcast on that obviously, but um, but the um, Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act also helps to in institute best practices in screening for and treating maternal mental health conditions. So it's a really impressive bit of legislation, um, and that's definitely something that we need to move forward with. There's also something called the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health or the AIM Maternity Care Safety Bundles. Arizona is uh, implementing one on hypertension. So the intent behind the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health or the, the AIM bundles is that state lawmakers and healthcare systems can use the AIM safety bundles to provide recommendations to effectively implement things like standard screening, intervention, referral, and follow-up for maternal mental health conditions and maternity care, as well as with pairing them with resources to aid in effective utilization. So in the state of Arizona, you know, the AIM group is, you know, the, the way that states choose who's going to be on the AIM group differs. Uh, here in the state of Arizona, it's a group of some OBs. I think there might be um, labor and delivery nurses. And one of the, so like I mentioned, they chose the hypertension safety bundle because when they did an initial look at the 30, I think it's 32 or 33 different hospitals that were participating on the AIM study. Uh, they found that the percentage of those who was actually properly screening for hypertension and then following up on potentially life-threatening events was very low and scary. So it's definitely a good place to start. However, we've got a lot of improvement that needs to be made in maternal health nationally, and it needs to be made fast. Yes. Follow-up is a, is a tough thing uh, in most areas of medical and, and mental and behavioral health, but it, it's so pertinent to positive treatment outcomes, especially in maternal mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The one other recommendation that the, the partnership made was that decision makers must work with and fund initiatives that are spearheaded by BIPOC-led birthing justice organizations um, because they are really leading the advocacy for quality mental health services that, again, are 
centering concern, centering on the concerns and lived experiences of the BIPOC communities. So I think that's another really important thing because, you know, again, when we're looking at from a trauma informed lens and from an integrated care lens, you know, looking at the whole person, looking at the whole perspective of the things that really actually contribute to disease and a lack of wellness in communities, you know, those individuals in BIPOC communities are at higher risk. Individual BIPOC individuals living in any community are at higher risk for disease and death. And certainly on the maternal mortality review committees, we're identifying, you know, a higher rate of individuals of color dying due to conditions like hypertension that were not identified conditions like substance use disorder that were not identified and properly treated during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and so there, there are definitely things that we need to promote um, and really amplify um, the concerns of those communities to get to a point of equity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Allison, I want to say thank you so much. I've kept you a little beyond our, our uh, arranged time, and I know you've got a lot of patients to get back to today. So I want to thank you so much for your time. And, and you know, certainly I think this is, we've talked about this before, but you and I could probably talk about this topic all day, maybe all week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I want to thank you again for, you know, sharing what's going on in in Oklahoma. Um, It's always good for folks to know what's going on in different areas. It's great to know about the Medicaid expansion for behavioral health access. And and certainly I hope that what you and I talked about today will help others in their communities make improvements in maternal mental health care. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks, Allison. Thanks for joining us on Disruptors at Work, everybody. We hope that you will uh, enjoy this, that we hope that you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you will join us again soon.